All right. Hello. Welcome to the monthly short story discussion of A Sword and Sorcery, a contemporary tale uh, hosted on the New Edge Sword and Sorcery Discord by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury, who, among other things, is the editor and publisher of New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine. I am joined by our incredibly uh, handsome and uh, internationally recognized uh, panel members, uh, Jay Wolf and Matt Holder. Uh, Jay, uh, starting with you, uh, could you two please uh, introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Jay Wolf. Uh, I am editor in Bon Vivant uh, of various publications and uh, projects. I think that's about it, really, for the moment. That's all I got in there. <laughs> Fair. Hi, I'm Matt Holder. I write re reviews for Strange Horizons, which may or may not be where you could encounter some of the stuff I've written, um, but I'm mostly a teacher. Fair enough. All right. So, yeah, as I say, we're here to discuss a contemporary sword and sorcery short story. This will probably be in the title for the YouTube video, but you know, why not? The story will be The Dog in the Corner by Stephen Graham Jones, a renowned horror author who is increasingly making his presence felt in the world of sword and sorcery, most recently um, actually with a Conan tale, part of a slew that are being published recently, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the story we're discussing today, The Dog in the Corner, was published not too long ago uh, this year in Cullen Bunn's anthology Swords in the Shadows, which is billed as a swords and sorcery horror anthology, featuring a murderer's row of very talented authors such as Stephen Graham Jones or Weird Tales editor Jonathan Mabry, uh, Haley Piper, Joe Lansdale, and many other great folks. Sorry, I didn't list all your names. <laughs> you can see that in the TOC, of course. Uh, yeah, I chose The Dog in the Corner because, well, frankly, I'm among the many people intrigued by Stephen Graham Jones' increasing moves into the SNS realm and the idea of a horror-specific SNS tale written by a horror author of his caliber uh, really interested me. So I thought, hey, why not give that a whirl? Um, Jay, do you mind sharing with us your first reactions to The Dog in the Corner? Oh, gosh. Um, all right, so... As or I can far as, first. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> um, I did that thing where I immediately, like, I had just swigged a tiny amount of water. Um, <laughs> uh, so as far as, like, first impressions go, so Oliver, one of the things that I remember that you talk about a lot is the the bodily as a part of sword and sorcery. Mm -hmm. And this story is basically all bodily in a very visceral way and it was it i'm trying to think of a way to to even express like the the initial reaction i had because it's a story that really makes the reader complicit in what has happened to the main character this fellow named lorne mm -hmm. and you are you were implicated in it simply by reading it, but at the same time, it makes you immediately sympathetic with him in a way that I thought was just fascinating. I I agree. Back to the bodily thing, it's kind of funny. You know, in recent years, I've been trying more and more in my own writing to be more cognizant that there are senses other than sight and sound. <laughs> You know, and yeah. uh, so it was very funny to pick this up and be like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, no, I mean, Stephen Graham Jones is on it with this one for obvious reasons, given that we're dealing with a character whose uh, eyes have been scooped out uh, and they've been raised as kind of a, a bloodhound, a human bloodhound. Uh, yeah. Uh, Matt, how about you? What was your sort of general reaction to this thing? 
Uh, I also sort of keyed into the um, how bodily it was, or sort of like sensual it was, and how material it was. I also um, was struck, I guess, by Stephen Graham Jones just sort of really going for it, and I was struck by how sort of like the sorcerer. I mean, we assume he's a sorcerer, or whatever. Actually, felt like transgressive and evil in a or he felt evil in a, um, a sort of really fundamental way, you know, that I don't, um, you know, oh, yeah, it's it, really profound. Like, it did, yeah, it didn't feel nasty. like sort of, you know, genre, He-Man Saturday morning cartoons, Skeletor, whatever, like this guy, <laughs> you know, is, he's sort of trying to fundamentally reshape the universe. And I think in a bad way, and I think there's a lot of stuff in here about boundaries and like, maintaining boundaries but also like pushing against the boundaries and sort of transgressing the boundaries and you know how do you define what makes a person a person and what makes a human a human all these questions that jones has dealt with in other of his work like i don't know if his book yeah. mongrels is about like werewolves and stuff and the only good indians is about this elkhead woman and he's very fascinated with like animal and like animus as as, as a theme and so I sort of, those are some of the things I noticed. And I there were moments where I was, like, where he puts his hand in the 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 paw print or the hand print and it matches his own or whatever. Like, moments that really stuck with me is very kind of shocking in a way. Um, oh, there's some really, yeah, there's some really good, like, chilling little details scattered throughout. Yeah, I was really, I felt this was a really tight story, you know? I felt like... It had exactly as many characters as it needed, and, and no more. I felt like it had enough suggestions of a bigger world. Like there was a line uh, later in the story where it just mentions when describing this sort of sorceress, Doctor Moreau, we've got here uh, stepping on an eyeball, <laughs> and yeah. it takes a moment to be like his, you know, his heels were very oh, calloused. No. Calluses being a sign of um, prestige or progress in his order. And that's it. We never hear any more about the Sorcerer's Order. We don't know if they're nearby or far away or how the hell any of that works. It doesn't matter because it's just like we're getting this little extra detail in in with the grossness of him treading on an eyeball. <laughs> it just hints, it's just enough to hint at a bigger world. I, 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 I don't know. For me, that that hit the bullseye of just enough for this little short story uh, in terms of that kind of inference of, of a bigger place while really we only get to meet the people who are directly involved with what's going on uh, and don't hear any real names of anybody else. Uh, did you guys appreciate that, or do you feel like, you know, would have liked more world building? Oh, no, I, I do not. Yeah, no, I don't no. think you could. Oh, sorry, sorry, Matt. No, I, I think the little bit of world building we get, which is very minimal. I mean, we learn about this weird village. I mean, the world is closed off because it's closed off to Lorne as a character. And I feel like the yeah, more so. that we would have known, it would have kind of broken the sort of immersion he was going for. Yeah, one of the things that I found was really interesting is that he's aware that he's supposed to have eyes, which to me, I thought that was kind of strange, actually, if only because of when this injury would have happened to him. And mm. so that was something that I thought I thought that was that was a unique character detail, not because I thought it was wrong, but just because it, it implies things that the that are not on page that the reader has to figure out what that means for themselves. Like what, what kind of trauma does that have with it? 
And I mean, this story is a story that has a lot of, of obviously like, there's a lot of on-page trauma and off-page trauma and, and, and it's not shy about it, which makes it, um, again, that, that sort of like engagement of complicity thing where you have to sort of confront what has been done to this person and what that, what that means going forward for that person. And what's been done to who knows how many others, right? Like, I mean, right. part of him breaking free from his master is realizing slash kind of being reminded, I got the impression, that, oh, I'm just the latest in the series and there's going to be right. more after me. Like, I'm just able and hound. I'm not just, master's yes, precious. Just like untold generations of trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in one, in the one throwaway line, we do catch that the sorcerer has been doing this to children taken from the village and earlier, I suppose, animals uh, in the woods. Um, for quote unquote generations. So who knows how many hundreds of years? Hmm. How do you feel it makes the uh, the reader complicit in what's going on? Well, because you have to because you honestly have to imagine doing that to someone just a little bit. It's not necessarily like again, like this is not and this is not a flaw in the story. this is a, this is hmm. I think this is by design. It hmm. is it makes you think about what it would take to make you a person who thinks well the easiest way to get the eyeball out would be to you know use a hot spoon so that it cauterizes the wound that amount of information tells you that someone has done that before and they know that they need to cauterize that wound because otherwise other things are going to happen there like that the, the it's all very subtle and this is part of just like this is just part of Stephen Grimm Jones's mastery in general, but there's so many little things like that that make you just like the the things that you have to imagine have happened in order for that information to exist for that character is just really stunning. Yeah, and it does really help you know put you into Lauren's head and to get you to a place where you think about some of the stimuli in the story in ways that you might not otherwise like early on when Lauren finds the guy who's been gutted by the bear and he can smell infection in the guy's gut and describes it being kind of tangy. Like I went straight from, uh, you know, a vague sense of, Oh, this guy's been disemboweled to tangy. And I just started thinking about foods I've had. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, that's silly to say out loud, but it did. There I am thinking, okay, well, what would, what would it really be like to be Lauren tangy? Okay. How do I process that? As opposed to if it just been thrown off, oh, this guy's been gutted. And I'd be like, well, I don't know anything about that from my life, blessedly, so whatever. You know, it, it, it brings you in that little bit, bit more. And I guess, yeah, it lends itself to that complicity that you described. And in turn, makes it more um, horrifying later when the new kid is going to be prepared uh, by having all of its senses removed. And you're, you know, I felt very much with Lorne in that moment of, oh, God, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, wait, he's going to do this and this and like walks you through it. You know, that sort of authority uh, lends, gets lent to the voice of writing. I feel when you have things explained, uh, you know, you do this and that and this and that, even when it's something fantastic or strange or terrible or all the all those things wrapped up in a big ball like we have here. Um, yeah, I really felt like with Lorne by that point. So I suppose it does what you want good writing to do, right? It immerses you. Uh, in yes. the character. Um, yeah. Jones, and I uh, think that, so Jones is like, um, he is a literary writer, and I mean that both in like the genre sense, but also in the sense of how he approaches, like he is a language first writer, mm-hmm. and he comes out of like the literary, his all his first novels, they're all like literary books, very exper- experimental, formal, weird stuff that no one read. 
And he writes genre stuff now because he likes it, but also, you know, people actually read what he writes and stuff. But that level of, um, that level of like super close, granular obsession with minute details, like that's very much a kind of trope that comes out of his literary sort of aspirations, which I think is a good thing to, um, glom onto in terms of your own writing and storytelling or whatever. Like there's so much value outside, you know, he does, I, I Somehow I doubt he spent much time thinking about whatever world this exists in. What I do think he spent a lot of time thinking about were the smells and what it feels like to put your hand on the ground and what it feels like to lick something like metal, you know, like that's what he's a, that's what he's sort of, that's his preoccupation as a writer um, is sort of characterizing things through these very well-observed details, um, yes. which is one of the reasons I like him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was uh, that was definitely something that I noticed throughout. And uh, in terms of like, uh, there were a couple of times where I noticed that there were sensory details that I felt like the character should not necessarily have, just because like there were some things where it's just like, hmm, well that's an interesting observation if you don't have eyes. But <laughs> it wasn't. It, it never never did those things last long enough for me to be like. Oh, right. Like there was no, that was, it wasn't strong enough to be like a refrigerator moment. It was like, oh, well, maybe he's internalized what this word means to, uh, to execute, you know, you know what I mean? Just to sort of like to, um, to ex exposit, there we go. Certain, yeah. like certain little specific things, but it was just, God, it was just so bodily. The whole thing is really um like wonderfully deliciously gross in that sense. And um I thought it was just yeah, everything about it really like clicked together for me on the whole that anything that I noticed that wasn't really like a singular I'm trying to think of a, a way to put it like there again, I, and I can't even summon an exact example of the type of thing I'm talking about. That's how minor it is. So fair. Yeah. I mean, there was a sort of cheat page on, uh, you know, in the hard copy, at least page 243, where, you know, the babe is, you know, the new baby is being pulled out of the sack. The thing's about to start happening here. Um, <laughs> and then it reads, uh, was it here? Uh, doo -doo -doo. Sorry, I have it right in front of me, but I lost my space on the page. Yeah, right. Um, you know, Lorne turned his face to the heat. He could feel it warming the back of the caverns that should hold his eyes. And for the first time, maybe because of the magic from the core of the sword, he sort of saw something. And then we get, you know, himself as an infant, right. a struggling pup, you know, and, and you get this kind of like. Yeah, it, know, it fills in the details there. Um, and again, like I said, it wasn't it was never something that broke my immersion. It was always just sort of like, huh, that's an interesting observation for this character to make. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and as far as the "quote unquote" cheat page, I mean, I say that with love because honestly, like, I did feel it added to the story. I was, I wasn't sitting there being like, "Hey," like some sort of cinema sins, you know? <laughs> uh, ding, see me over, Jones. I'm just gonna say, like, oh, really? Yeah, sorry, <laughs> that put a bad taste in my mouth as I said. Bringing it, it down in here. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and also actually, uh, to Matt, what you were saying about um, the literary voice. Um, how did you feel about, you know, Stephen Graham Jones's use of language maybe being perhaps more literary? Because I, I wonder, you know, I haven't seen really, I would say, much of it uh, thus far. I, I'm at, I'm at Stephen Graham Jones' story now, uh, so I've got about a third of the anthology left to read. 
But in what I've read so far, I haven't seen a lot of people clambering to do like a, their best Robert E. Howard impression. You know what I mean? They're, to try and capture the, the, the capture that kind of language, the kind of quote unquote um, stereotypical sword and sorcery language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, to me, like talking about his style or his form, which I'm assuming is what you're talking about here. Yeah. Um, Stephen Graham Jones writes in a way that to me feels like almost breathless or almost reckless. So like he feels like someone when he writes that I don't know how much revision he does. He could be someone who revises a lot and that's how he creates this effect. But on the page, it almost feels like he's writing so fast and so quickly that it creates this kind of propulsion and momentum. Um, His sentences are often quite long, uh, longer than they might be otherwise um, compared to, I don't know, others. Uh, but, um, his dialogue is often short, like it feels very natural. Um, he doesn't have people say too much, or if they do talk, they feel very conversational and like regular humans or whatever. Um, but to me, that's what I know. I also, um, I mean, just looking on that page, you were just at 243, um, right in the middle of that page, uh, smell can give you location, it can give you history, it can divulge intentions, but it can't map planes, it can't draw lines, it can't inhale the shape of a thing, of a face, a person, a master. That's very much written by someone who, like, to me, understands that writing has rhythm, and it also can rhyme with itself, and it has mm-hmm. all this parallel structure. Um, again, to me, those are the things that I sort of notice and pick up on uh, when I read him. It's just, he very much... Again, I think he considers the language before he considers almost anything else on the page. Yeah, that's definitely that was that was another thing that I noticed. Um, I'm a big fan of repetition and patterns like the one that you just called out there. Um, And that actually kind of brings me to mind of Michael Moorcock, who does a lot of the same thing. And that's about Mm -hmm. as sword and sorcery as it gets. That habit of of like a like a staccato of of images that all stitch together very seamlessly at the end. That that literary technique is very much in the in the flavor of sword and sorcery. And that was definitely one of the things that just as I was going through the story, like I I felt it and absorbed it, but I didn't necessarily take a lot of notes on it. <laughs> Just because it was present, it was there, and it, it it did not again didn't break my immersion. It was it was part of the desired effect. Yeah, no, I really uh, appreciate that. And good point about Moorcock, which I feel a fool for not having thought of myself. If only because I, I am having the good fortune to publish a story by him and, and did some editing work on it. <laughs> oh, well, you're rare. Um, yeah, and I, I gotta say, I really appreciated even um, even, the, even the ending, given that this was, again, I, I've got a third of the book left to read. We'll see what I pick up in that. But um, I want to read the first two thirds, which uh, I've certainly enjoyed other stories in it. But his was by far the most visceral, I think. If it's fair to say, uh, you guys will probably agree with me once you get a chance it's to like to one of the that. top five most visceral stories I feel like I've read in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and very much in that character's perspective and all that stuff. Um, but and yet, and yet, as, as visceral and as truly evil as what is being attempted in this to turn, you know, the babe into a kind of, um, you know, sixth sense sensory post. <laughs> right. You know, a person with no senses except what inner eye it hopefully will have. <laughs> this is the other thing I love that it's just like this is an experiment. Let's see what happens if you remove all the senses. Um, yeah. 
even with all that kind of stuff and and things, you know, really oh, just sorry. I mean, I'm just kind of gushing a little bit, but whatever. Uh, I think one detail in particular that really stuck out to me about um, again coming back to the guy with his guts uh, torn out early on, and how when the guy eventually dies and Lauren gets to like stick his snout in and eat whatever he feels like eating out of the guy, and he goes straight to the guy's stomach to taste the meal because of how it might remind him of the nearby village that he knows he came from. And then he's like, oh, this is a meal I don't recognize. It's from even further afield. I can't imagine what that is. And then just moves on. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, even with all these kinds of like uh, morbid and, and, and lonely and, and horrifying details in it, uh, it does end on a kind of hopeful note that doesn't feel saccharine either. Like, how did you, uh, starting with you, Matt, how did you guys feel about the ending? I like the ending. Uh, I think you're right. It doesn't feel saccharine simply because like, I mean, this guy's world is real bad. Um, yeah. I mean, he's not—he's not okay. Uh, I mean, he got away, and he's with these these bear people or whatever. I still don't quite know exactly what they are. Um, bear without fur. Um, but yeah, I was uh, like, is he got human skin? But yeah, that's okay. It's fun know. to imagine. But and he's got the kid, so setting up—I don't know—Jungle Book type story, I suppose. Um, but yeah, to me, it felt—you know—the story was about these breaking of cycles. We're about trying to break this cycle um and again he broke the cycle but you know there still feels like residual harm not only to his own person but again to almost like the world itself um is not quite not quite right um after everything that this sorcerer has done or the master Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and exactly, it ends on just the whole idea of like, well, you know, he has no sense of what uh, tomorrow might hold, but uh, things feel better because it wouldn't be the same as yesterday. So as you say, breaking cycles, right? Uh, and I, I really appreciated that, that it doesn't, you know, I sort of imagined he was going to bring the kid down to the village and be like, uh, here, <laughs> I'll try and bring it back to his mom. But like, that's not going to go super well, is it? <laughs> so. No, I mean, that kid's life is probably also not going to be the best, who knows? <laughs> well, I'm just remembering. Sorry, I just reread it, but like, did, didn't he get in there before the kids' senses got uh, sealed and stolen and stabbed out? He did. Yeah, he you're did. right. Um, now he'll, he'll just be raised by weird animal people, I guess. Essentially. <laughs> <laughs> how, how about you, Jay? How did that, you feel about it? That does make sense, though, that he would actually take it back to the mom. That that seems to be the most logical thing. But see, that would have been like a saccharine ending. Um, oh, I would I have been so. I would have been so upset if that was the ending. <laughs> Yeah. Well, to me, it's fun to imagine him doing it afterward and then being like, well, okay, they'll be happy they got their baby back, but they're not going to accept him as a citizen of the village or yeah, anything. Right. It, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't actually, like, that's one of those things where, like, that's an ending that sounds like the right ending, but it's not the right ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to kind of, like, piggyback on one of the things that, that Matt pointed out, which mm-hmm. was the idea that, like, this the the one evil has been defeated in this thing but the greater scope and scale of what this sorcerer has done is unfixable that this world is very much going to be the product of this sorcerer for an untold period of time to come you know long after lorn is out of the picture that picture is still going to be pretty horrific and that was one of the things that really grabbed me just and i mean i think that that's thematically resonant in general with a lot of his work but mm-hmm. it was just like that was i think like kind of my lasting takeaway was like this world has been destroyed by the wanton needs of this 
very delusional sorcerer. And so everyone within range of him is someone who is at best going to have to like pick up the pieces and live with the damage. Yeah. I also wonder about how much the villagers might remember, right? Like this killing this guy undo some of the magic he's inflicted on them in the past. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's one of the kind of joys of how tight this this world building is, mm. is that 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 is almost entirely out of the scope and parameter of the story so far that you just sort of like, well, I hope somebody cares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting nice to think about or even discuss on a panel, right? As opposed to having it all spelled out for us, which I suppose comes back to one of those things that's not exclusive to sword and sorcery, but I do feel is found to be found in the best of it. Is is this tighter focus and only telling you what you really need and letting inferences and wonderings fill in the gaps for you. Yeah, I think I would be really troubled if there was like something didactic about the way this ended. <laughs> yeah, and that's why you're you're you be be good to kids and animals. Like, all right, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So okay, so uh, I feel like we've discussed the story itself pretty uh, thoroughly. Uh, unless there's anything else either of you want to add, in which case, by all means, please leave in. But uh, we were discussing before we hit record. Pardon me, Matt. One last thing I wanted to mention that I do like about the story, and I sort of mentioned it at the beginning, but like the story is dealing with almost like taboo subjects in a way like you are not supposed to like hurt kids like that's in most cultures, that's pretty bad. And you're also not Mm -hmm. supposed to eat people. That's also pretty bad. Like that's a kind of taboo. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I like the story is just and this is in a lot of Jones work, but he is just not interested in being safe and playing it safe. And I'm so tired of reading stuff that tries, that feels safe. And I just like that this really like went somewhere that is pretty bad. Um, And in that way, it didn't feel safe. Like he's dealing with these taboo subjects and he's like indulging them. He's like sort of putting them on display, which is again, it's just something that, makes the story not feel safe. And that's something that I like um, in sort of what I read. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially given that we're seeing things through Lauren's eyes, ahem, uh, and that normalizes so much of the awfulness until some of it is rejected by Lauren in the back end. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, how do you both feel like, you know, as we talked about a little bit before we hit record and I'm, I'm curious to discuss uh, on mic here. Um, this Swords in the Shadows anthology was billed as a Swords and Sorcery horror anthology. And the reaction I saw amongst some to that when uh, this first was being kickstarted was, well, what are you talking about? Horror is an intrinsic part of Swords and Sorcery. It was there at its roots back in the, you know, weird fiction uh, days, uh, back in the pulps in the 30s. You know, the genre lines were less um, well-defined, and Swords and Sorcery was, yeah, fantasy, but also historical adventure, but also some elements of science fiction would creep in, and absolutely horror. Uh, not just the more obvious, you know, things like Lovecraftian elements that snuck into Howard stories. So, uh, did you feel this story like? Would you just call it sword and sorcery? Or would you feel it it requires the delineation that, like, yes, while it's sword and sorcery, but like it's leaning heavy on the horror, or it's a sword and sorcery horror tale? Uh, starting with you, Jay, how, how do you guys feel about that? Oh um, well, so one of the things that I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about recently is categorization for the purposes of getting people to look at things. And so um, in that regard, I actually think tagging it horror is 
really smart because it does i mean first of all because it does lean really hard on the horror in my opinion um i did not read a lot of the other stories um i skimmed a couple of them just sort of because like oh i recognize that name i would like to see what this is about Mm -hmm. but i haven't actually had a lot of time to dedicate to it so it's sort of on the on the back burner for the moment but i did want to say like yeah there is actually like i think there's an argument and honestly i think there's an argument for putting the the specific tag of horror on a lot of sword and sorcery items um simply because it's a it's a market and it is kind of a separate market from the fantasy market and so drawing eyes across that bridge across that barrier that sort of sort of exists but doesn't exist in terms of marketing i think is really smart um just in terms of of trying to grab crossover eyes um i don't think it's an inaccurate description for this specific anthology either but it just is a general thought i think more people in that basket should think about marking sword and sorcery at least at least as a subcategory with horror all right how do you feel about it matt um, I also, I mean, thinking of this story in particular, I do think it's more of a horror story. This whole anthology is mostly horror writers who I imagine were asked to give me a sword and sorcery story with horror. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is probably a response to like the kind of general perception of what sword and sorcery is, which is sort of like muscly barbarians and stuff and silly nonsense. Um, and sort of, so I think that is part of where this kind of package comes from um yeah i don't see any problem with like labeling it horror as well just because i mean some of that old stuff is horror in some ways but some of it is not um or like whatever scary so like the tension between so much sword and sorcery and horror is that you can't have a hero necessarily who's just going to kill everything and walk away and be okay in a horror mm-hmm. story necessarily because the genres in some ways kind of ask you to do separate things. And mm-hmm. so you have to, it becomes a matter of where you place emphasis. And to me, this is just, we're going to place more emphasis on, you know, the horror side. We're not going to have the big muscly barbarians come in and hack the thing with the sword because that's no longer horror in my opinion. It may be weird and it may still be exist in that genre, but the stakes are very different. Uh, I'm not worried about Conan going insane or succumbing to whatever the evil. Like, he's going to win. It's just going to happen, you know? Um, Even if victory for him is running away, right? I mean, something that's always yeah. kind of amusing is when you read your first Conan story where you encounter something horrifying and you're like, okay, he's going to stab it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he, he is also horrified and it's trying to get out of there. Um, but ultimately, he lives, as you say, and is not, in, you know, a, a Lovecraft uh, protagonist who's insane at the end. So, yeah. Yeah, in the chat, I think is really good. In horror, there are no victors, only survivors. Yeah, good point, Kevin. Good point. And and I mean, it's kind of interesting with the Stephen Graham Jones story that we've just read because arguably, Lorne is a victor in the sense that he, you know, he achieves his goal. He does something that is actually quite heroic. He saves a baby, uh, you know, from an evil sorcerer. Classic sword and sorcery, uh, heroic fantasy. Even really getting into heroics there, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he's I, a survivor. He's a survivor. He's, That's... he's a survivor. Yeah, exactly. He's a I don't, I don't... 
he's a victor in the way that the final girl is a victor, right? Like he's a victor in the way that the last girl at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre is laughing and screaming, covered in blood, driving away from the chainsaw man. Like it's that kind of victor where it's like, okay, you're not dead, but you're also not okay. You're not ever going to be the same. No. You are permanently marked and changed by your experience. Yes. And boy, if that isn't, you know, a sign of most horror stories where, you know, anybody actually lives. Um, yeah, yeah. I must confess, I when I very first heard of the anthology, I was, well, I, I felt a mix of feelings. I was super intrigued because I, I was, you know, excited to see uh, sort of a known quantity, you know, Colin Bunn's not coming out of nowhere here. He's a very well-respected author, um, mm-hmm. you know, Comic Sphere and elsewhere, uh, doing an anthology of Sword and Sorcery. So someone outside of what I kind of think of as kind of the choir, the usual characters. So that was neat because I was like, oh, good, it's expanding. Great. I want to see that. Um, and the theme, I admit, for a half second, I did have kind of a knee jerk, like, oh, well, it's an horror and intrinsic part of it, you know. But two things really made change my mind on that. One of them is actually reading it, of course, uh, you know, going through and going, yeah, okay, like stories such as the one we've discussed uh, tonight absolutely like are more akin to that phrase i like to abuse uh you know about robert e howard draping other genres over uh sword and sorcery like oh, sorry draping sword and sorcery over other genres like a cloak for a lot of these it does feel kind of like doing that right it's sword and sorcery being draped over horror at its core a lot of these stories are very more horror uh than anything so it's a it's a worthy delineation the other thing that, thing that really changed my mind was uh well forgive the self-plug but uh, editing the new issues of New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine, issues one and two, because I did look back at our issue zero and feel like, well, there wasn't really a lot of horror, as much horror as I wanted or felt I wanted, or I don't know, you know? And so trying to differentiate our, our uh, issues that are going to be out soonish, um, I specifically was like, yeah, let's get some horror in here. And I even reached out to an author, uh, sorry, pardon me, an artist, uh, Daniel Vega, who has a real knack for particularly horrific, hor- hor- I can't speak tonight, pardon me, horrific renderings um, and paired him with a suitable story, uh, Carnivora by Kurt Johnson. So if I'm doing that, then I mean, how can I have any issues? <laughs> you know, how can I be like, oh, well, you know, horror is a necessary tag. Let me turn over and, and do that to my own stuff. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. I sort of feeling my relationship to this change and ultimately like, I'm really into it. I, I, I think there are some stories that don't feel enough like either genre to me, funny enough. Um, again, we could be a jerk and name names, but there was one or two stories that didn't really feel like an SNS to me uh, and also like didn't feel like horror in the sense of really grabbing me at a visceral level the way Stephen Graham Jones' story did, but instead just kind of had signifiers of horror. Do you know what I mean? Just oh, like, yeah. Oh, like, here's tentacles or whatever. I'm not referring to a specific story with that. Uh, yeah, and just me being kind of like, okay, well, here's the surface elements, but if it's not really sword and sorcery, and it's just kind of like, yeah, anyway. Uh, but the point is not to, uh, to crap on things. Uh, so, yeah, so the genre distinction does feel uh, worth it then. Okay, yeah. And then you make a good point to the business argument, Jay, which is, of course, uh, something that influences creativity all the time. Unfortunately. Um, <laughs> this, I mean, the it. anthology is, like, it does feel like something that came out outside of you know whatever we consider like the small niche like sns community like again these are all horror people Mm -hmm. there i don't think i don't consider them like sns authors or even fantasy authors um and i mean honestly like cullen bunn is the biggest name attached to sword and sorcery in a long time like I, I mean, no shame to Sterling, but I don't know who that guy is. And the guy who wrote the latest Conan book, like, I'm sorry. And honestly, like, Stephen Graham Jones is also the highest profile name in the past, I don't know, five, ten years that's been attached to this genre. And so I think it's interesting. I mean, this is, frankly, this will bring more people into 
SNS than some of the stuff that gets done in the more kind of like niche indie spaces, which is all very good and helps to like evolve the genre in other ways. But as far as like trying to bring people in, I mean, Colin Bunn is like a comic superstar. He's not just, he's not a lightweight, like he's huge. And the same with mm-hmm. Stephen Graham Jones, like they're the ones that are going to get people to pick up and read this stuff. That's in seats, as they say. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, good. Good. maybe like, a couple of other names, like Jonathan Mayberry. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay, Matt. Sorry. Please repeat what you said. I was, yeah, I was I mean, Jonathan say, Mayberry, I, I think, would be would be like closer true. to a sword and sorcery yeah. name, sure. Yeah, he is he is big. But like these are the kinds of guys that you want uh or pe- just people that you want to get to you know, to do this stuff. Like as they're sort of slowly kind of relaunching or not relaunching, but like Titan is doing whatever it's doing with the the Conan properties, like mm-hmm. I still sort of some of it looks super exciting and super awesome, and then some of it I'm just like eye roll. Like, why? How is this going to do anything? I don't understand what the goal is here. Um, it's but I also roll your eyes. Yeah, I also <laughs> think that like the the best way to, or the only way, honestly, to like move something or evolve it or change it or whatever is like you have to do like experimental things. You've got to give it to people that are going to be like, I don't care whatever happened a thousand years ago when you know like i like this is what i think it is and i have a voice and that's what's more important to me than anything is like do you actually have something to say and like Mm -hmm. let those people tell those stories widening the circle a little bit of like who is telling these stories and how they're telling them and unfortunately i mean that does mean that sometimes the stories aren't told the way that like we specifically would want them told but right. it also means that it that it changes it it, it improves the the possible shape of the genre. Yeah, and, I what, and what it can execute. I completely agree. I just always I always like to kind of like dig in and pick at it a little bit. I suppose this sort of oh, threshold sure. between like the fear of um, it not growing and it just being the same voices telling the same stories over and over again, photocopies of the canon or whatever, uh, and it shrivels and goes away over time. Or, you know, uh, the circle expands so fast in such a manner that it diffuses somehow. You know? <laughs> and uh, what does so, what Sword and Sorcery get? You know, because I mean, this is often discussed, right? In, in the choir is this sort of frustration at how the term Sword and Sorcery has become to more people than are into it, I think. Um, synonymous with just, I don't know, fantasy, right? Um, and so when we, something like this comes out, there's that feeling of like, okay, well, it's good that it's growing, but, but is it, is it really adding to what we consider actually sword and sorcery yeah. or is it, you know, just more, uh, mislabeling of epic fantasy or whatever the heck you were um, always like, I think you're always going to piss people off and you should, I mean, this is what happened when you had 50 sci-fi Asimov boring, whatever robot stuff. And then you have people like Harlan Ellison and Michael Moorcock with their stuff. I mean, they pissed so many people off because everyone was like, this isn't science fiction. What is this like psychoanalysis <laughs> nonsense, right? You're yeah. always I, and I, like, to me, you should, you should make people mad. <laughs> like to <laughs> art, good, in my opinion, but um, you know, that's, that's going to happen. So there are, they're all going to, there are going to be these tensions. People are going to fall off, slide away and be like, this isn't my sword and sorcery, whatever. And it's like, fine, go read your sword and sorcery, whatever, or read whatever you want to read. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think what I find interesting with sword and sorcery is the fact that it is a subgenre, right? Like with sci-fi, broadly speaking, like absolutely people should be coming in and messing it up. Same with fantasy, broadly speaking. But when you have like this sort of niche, right? How much can you expand a niche before it becomes unrecognizable? Uh, so I again, I'm I'm not trying to be a concern troll here. Uh, I'm literally a guy trying to widen the circle. <laughs> 
<laughs> with my own publications. So, you know, um, but it is a tension that I, I suppose because of my publication that I, I am constantly thinking about. And I do feel that, again, I've, I've got a third left to go, pardon me. Uh, but based on the two thirds I've read, I think this story this anthology is is cool. I think it's worth reading. I think it's a good addition uh, to the contemporary sword and sorcery scene. Um, and uh, certainly, I love Stephen Graham Jones' story, and it absolutely ticks all the boxes for me as sword and sorcery, even though it doesn't feature a mighty thu clone ant or whatever. Um, you know, to me, that's not sword and sorcery. That's something else, uh, so to speak. Um, it uh, not the epitome of sword and sorcery. I should clarify. Uh, but yeah, I I, th- I think this is good, and, and also uh, we need to remind ourselves sometimes. I think like anthologies are great, like laboratories right so like so like i'm going through this and like i don't expect every story to blow me out of my chair in terms of quality or what i perceive as quality i don't expect every story to you know meet my most exacting sword sorcery criteria instead i'm just going to be like okay well here are the ones that work for me and here are the authors that intrigue me and like i'll just i'll build from there so you know and certainly i feel enough stories in the two-thirds i've read so far um have hit you know rung that bell the bell of general like okay this is neat and this is adding something cool all right i'm I'm there i'm here for it <laughs> um yeah and anthologies are great for like discovering authors like i don't know how many times i've read some story by some person in an anthology and i go and find whatever you know that they whatever it is that they wrote and i think with this because it is coming more from the horror space you know you're going to you know, if you're a fan of SNS, if you are a writer of SNS, you know, go out and, and you like one of these stories, like go out and read these other authors' stuff. It's mostly horror stuff, but doing that is going to like just add more tools to your toolbox or whatever as far as things that you can bring into, you know, your own storytelling, et cetera, et cetera. That's a really good point. Um, in terms of just like widening the scope of, of what, what we read in general it's definitely especially when you're really interested when you have a really like tight special interest that's in a really really tight niche spreading out and figuring out things that are outside of that niche that are still appealing to you that's actually yes that's that's so smart and finding art artists authors excuse me that that do that for you by you know like you know looking at uh, other stories that those authors have written is just spot on um, I can say from my experience doing anthology work too that the juggling act that it takes to put together a compelling anthology and really have it all speak the same language while really representing the the visions of so many different authors, like it takes a lot of work for that to really come together. And in that regard, I think Colin, Colin Bunn has done a really fantastic job with the pieces that I have read so far from here. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. Plus, I mean, anthologies themselves are, are you know, a big part of the sword and sorcery tradition, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a long conversation way, uh, going onward. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, unless there's anything either y'all want to add to the story or the anthology discussion, uh, I think we're we're getting about time to wrap up. Uh, Matt, do you have any final thoughts? No, I will say that this book has like a freaking awesome cover by Anne Marie mm. Cochran is their name. Um, and I mentioned that just because it's not, I don't know. It, I'll just say that's a very cool cover and I'll just not say anything else. Um, if nothing else, you should pick it up for the cool cover, which gives you all the sort of barbarians and swords and tentacles um, that you can really, <laughs> uh, 
and also read other Stephen Graham Jones stuff. Like he's super good. I he is one of my favorite writers. I think he's incredible. Um, you, I think you can learn a lot from him as a craftsperson, and I think you can also learn about how to like make your characters believable and compelling in a short amount of space. So uh, absolutely. Read, read Do you stuff. have a preferred starting point with him? So for for me, like I I sort of read him when he blew up really big which was with the only good indians and so that is what i recommend to people um that book sort of just blew me away and i think it's incredible uh he's got his trilogy now like my heart is a chainsaw if you're like a huge horror fan and you just love like horror film and cinema then you should check out my heart is a chainsaw which is kind of his love letter it's like the first of this trilogy he's doing um He's got a bunch of novellas. Night of the Mannequins is super good about the movies. He's got a ton of um, mongrels. It's about werewolves. Um, he's got a book called Lead Feather. Like if you're into historical fiction and stories about like indigenous peoples and colonization, imperialism, extraction, all that good stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Lead Feather is really good. That's when he was still doing more of his like literary um, experimental stuff. But yeah. I'm just sitting here nodding along. Um, I just want to throw out a quick shout out for his book, Mapping the Interior, which just like blew my mind when I read it the first time. That I haven't read that one yet, but it's, oh. real, it's real short. I know I need to pick it up. I, I'm going to just go ahead and say like, yeah, <laughs> I'll let you, I, I don't want, I'm, I'm terrible at telling people like why they should read things, but that one, that one changed my craft for the better. So. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so do you have any other uh, final thoughts, Jay, or are you good? I mean, honestly, I just like my at the end of the day, like my my thought is like, God, I love Stephen Graham Jones. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. I, I am slowly working through more and more of his his, uh, his bibliography. I'm really uh, digging it. Um, yeah. OK, well, I, I mean, as far as me, I, I think I kind of said my piece about the, the book and the story for now. So, yeah, I'll just say uh, to anyone listening, thank you for listening to this uh, and joining us. I hope we'll continue this monthly short story, contemporary sort uh, sword and sorcery, short story discussion thing. Uh, I'm going to tentatively throw out a book, a story, and a date, but a uh, date uh, to be firmed up later. I'm going to say uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, October, Wednesday 18th. So we'll throw that out there for a date and time. Uh, and then for the book, uh, I would like to go to another Sword and Sorcery anthology because we've been embarrassed uh, with riches this year. We've had quite a few come out. I would like to go over to A Book of Blades, Volume 2, the annual question mark we've only had two so far <laughs> uh anthology series put out by the rogues in the house sword and sorcery podcast crew and of the stories within it that i would like uh to have a look at um you know we've, we've talked about a couple of dudes so far we've had uh, howard, you know howard andrew jones in the last one uh steven in this one uh let's read something by gasp a lady let's read the wolves of winter road by t.a marketon which uh, I kind of got a kick out of reading uh, the other night at someone's recommendation. And I would love to chat about it with other humans. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, yeah, again, thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. Um, and uh, I don't know if you have anything you want to plug. I'll take that as a no. <laughs> All right, Jay, do you have anything coming out you want to mention? Oh, gosh. Um, so technically I do, but I can't tell you what it is. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, I have, I do have a novel coming out uh, this month. Um, it'll be one of a number of novels coming out this month from the Ink Fort Press self-publishing Derby. 
which is an anonymous publishing contest, question mark, that uh, basically a bunch of us have taken a a couple of months to do a nano-ish type mad dash to finish a book. And uh, and now it's a, a, about to be out. We're on the precipice. Absolute madness. So if you join us for the next panel, by that point, you'll be allowed to say which book was yours? I I will be one week out from being able to unmask. Oh, okay, okay. All right. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> we'll have a status check on exactly how nuts I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, I, as ever, uh, am the editor of New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine. Pre-orders for issues one and two uh, is available now. Go to newedgesorcery.com. Issue number one featuring a new Elric story by Michael Moorcock himself. But... You know, there are plenty of other uh, not yet legendary authors uh, whose uh, fiction and nonfiction you can enjoy, along with a bevy of gorgeous art, including Daniel Vega's horrifying stuff uh, that I mentioned earlier. All right. Thank you all for listening and for participating and doing that thing. We'll uh, come back here in about a month. Bye. Thank you. Bye.